0: Our New Testament scripture passage is in the ninth chapter of Matthew, starting with verse 18. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and kneeled before him, saying, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came behind him and touched the fringe of his garment For she said to him herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned, and seeing her, he said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all that district. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, according to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, see that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame through all that district. As they were going away, behold, a demon oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel, but the Pharisees said, "He cast out demons by the prince of demons. the word of the Lord. Thank
1: As the church, as the people of God, we are those people who are, are called together, that are created, that are crafted by the Word of God. And in light of that truth, let us come again and look. At the Gospel of Matthew. And before we look at this text, let us come before God in prayer. God, our Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for all that you've given to us. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your gospel that you give us in your word. And Lord, I do pray that the words that follow would be faithful to your intentions to this passage and that through them we would come to know your gospel that we would come to know the person and work of Jesus Christ even more. And we ask these things in the power of your spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So the classicist scholar, Elizabeth Van she points out that the ancient Greek epic poem, the, the Iliad, it's often referred to as the poem of death. The topic of death is, is woven throughout the narrative as, as we're given this snapshot of the final year of this decade-long siege of, of the Greeks upon Troy. And it's interesting because she says one role that death plays is its relation to virtue and nobility. Van Diver explains that the gods in the Iliad, they're, they're neither virtuous nor noble. But it's the humans, it's, it's the mortals, it's those who are in the Greek quite literally called the dead ones. And even in our English, this is exactly what mortal means. It is they alone that show nobility. And perhaps if, if you're familiar with the story, it's, it's Hector, the Trojan who is fated to die at the hand of Achilles, who proves the most noble of all as he fulfills his duties to his family, to his city, to his royal office. Van Diver argues that in this world, it's the reality of their death and the overall hardships of the mortal life that makes the humans noble. However, the gods of Olympus who neither die nor face the hardships of human life, they have no need for virtue or nobility. And so they become frivolous and petty and greedy and envious and adulterous. But let's take Van Diver's critique even further. What those gods show us is what it would be like to live forever in this world, to not have to worry at all about death. But think about it. In a a very real way, they are living the life that the average American aspires to. We never talk about death, and, and perhaps in our society, death is the last and only taboo, the one thing that you just can't talk about. And so we live as if we will never die. Unlike the subsistence farmers of the Greek and Trojan countryside, the average American pantry is, is, is also much more easily stocked. And so we're tempted to become just like these gods. We're tempted to struggle with the same envy and pettiness and vengefulness as these great gods. And Social media and 24-hour news channels are proof enough of this. We're just as likely to feel slighted as Zeus. We're just as likely to take offense as Aphrodite. We've removed the sobering reality of death from our minds. And so we've forgotten the virtue and the nobility that only taking a square look at death can foster. We no longer, like Moses in Psalm 90, come to God with a humbling and harrowing realization of our mortality. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Instead, we choose to ignore death completely. We act as if it doesn't exist, and we just don't speak about it. And so we attempt to, to be young, to stay young, and to look young at any and all costs. We're tempted to seek youth above all else, and in effect, we don't become childlike, but childish. We're no longer like Moses. We're more like the Greek god Artemis, who when she looks upon the dying Hippolytus, a devoted follower of hers, she says in the words of the playwright Euripides, Farewell. It's not lawful for me to look upon the dead or to defile my sight with the last breath of dying. But, of course, there's a key difference here. We, unlike Artemis, are mortal. We will die, and even now, in some way, shape, or form, we are dying. And so, unlike Artemis, we must and will look upon the dead. We must and will look upon the dying. We must and will look upon those who pass. We must and will look upon ourselves, who every day, every minute, are passing. Like the crowd in Acts 19, we might chant, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! But as mortals, as the dead ones, we cannot go on chanting forever. And just like that confused crowd, we too will be soon dispersed. However, as Moses goes on to assure us in Psalm 90, when we look upon death as followers of God, God himself will teach us to number our days, that we may get a heart of wisdom. Without looking squarely at dying in death, especially our own, Moses is telling us that wisdom will ever escape us. And so you might say, this is kind of a downer. Doesn't this force us into to cynicism, into a, a pessimistic, into a negative view of things? Well, we can't forget that true wisdom is the wisdom of God. And that the very wisdom of God is Christ Jesus himself, the one who brings the dead to life. And these are the truths, these are the realities that we have to hold together as we approach this passage. We have to look squarely at the present human reality of death. But also, we have to rest our hearts in Christ's certain promise of life. And so let's look at this passage under three headings. Dying, death, independence. Let's look first at dying. So let's start by cataloging what it is that we see in this passage. We encounter the death of a young girl. We encounter a woman who has suffered a discharge of blood for 12 years. We encounter two men who are blind. We encounter a mute man who is unable to speak because of demonic oppression. And, of course, these are not things that are only confined to this passage. This life is good. This life is a precious gift from God. But we all know that it bears the stain of dying and death. We have, for instance, medical workers in this congregation who face these realities daily. And we all see this and more in our own lives, in our own friendships, in our families, even in our own bodies. And so what's going on here? How are we supposed to understand human death and dying? How are we supposed to understand the corruption and the sickness of our bodies? Why is the good creation of God made to suffer such hardships? Well, the Apostle Paul is helpful here, however hard his words may strike us. Paul, in Romans 8, 20-21, he gives us a framework for understanding the many forms of death and dying that now Plague us. Paul says the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Paul tells us that creation, and and that's everything that God has made, that's everything that exists that's not God. Paul tells us that creation was subjected to futility but that it was done so for a purpose. And so let's unpack this statement bit by bit. First, when did this happen? When was creation subjected to futility? Well, this is God's cursing of creation in response to the sin of Adam and Eve. The ground was cursed with thorns and thistles and even our own bodies were cursed. As God warns Adam in Genesis 3, You are dust, and to dust you will return. This was one of the punishments for the human act of sin that separated humanity from God. But we can go deeper. What does Paul mean here by futility? Well, the Greek word that's translated futility here is the Greek word metaiatese. And it's a term that deals with something's purpose, with something's end, with something's telos, with what God created that thing to do. However, Matthias speaks of something not fulfilling its purpose, not fulfilling its telos, not functioning like God intended that thing to function. For instance, the body was not created to bleed for 12 years straight. Eyes were not created to be without sight. The mouth was not created to be without speech. Young girls were not created to die. And yet, we are dust, and to dust we shall return. We bear this futility. We bear this dust-directedness. We bear this death-directedness. But can we say more? Again, this futility is the punishment that we all bear for the sin of Adam and Eve, but it's also the natural consequence of turning away from God. To turn away from God is to turn away from the very source of life, and so to turn toward nothingness and death. Death is not Sorry, death just is the natural consequence of that most unnatural action, sin. And so this futility is both God's curse and our consequence. Paul in Romans 5 has already told us that Adam is the one who brought human death into the world. As God tells Adam in Genesis 3, 17, cursed is the ground because of you. But God's action here is different than that of Adam's. Adam subjected creation to futility for the sake of his pride, for the sake of hubris. But not God, God did so for the sake of hope. Again, as Paul tells us, God subjected creation to futility in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. That means that this futility is meant to lead to the end futility this corruption of creation is meant to lead to the end of creation's corruption but how is this so well this brings us back to the present passage notice what each person in this passage does all of them come to jesus The father of the girl comes to Jesus. The woman herself comes to Jesus. The blind men cry out loudly in desperation to Jesus. The man without speech is brought to Jesus by those who care for him. These hardships of futility drive all of these people to Jesus in hope. These effects that we bear because Adam turned away from God are now the very means by which these people turn back to God. The effects of turning away from God are meant to lead us back to God. This is the hope for which we have borne the curse of futility. And so all of these people in response to these futilities that they bear, they seek out and turn to Christ in the hope of life and healing if you turn away from a fire on a cold night you will get cold if you turn away from food on an empty stomach you will starve if you turn away from light in a dark room you will be unable to see if you turn away from god the very source of life that is if you sin you will die you are cold turn back to the fire you're hungry turn to the food you cannot see, turn to the light, you are dying. Turn to God, who is your very life. The futility of cold is meant to direct you to fire, the futility of hunger to food, the futility of darkness to light, the futility of death to God. But the hardships of bodily decay and corruption, they force us to ask questions and to ponder truths that we'd rather not think about. And when these hardships of dying and death hit us, we will have to take them into account. As C.S. Lewis writes, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. We must remember that in our pain, God is shouting to us, and we must let this shout rouse us to hope. The writer Annie Dillard in her book, Pilgrim at Tinker Creek, she describes cruelty as the waste of pain, the waste of pain. It's pain for no purpose, it's pain for no good reason, it's simply pain for the sake of pain. But God is never cruel, yes, he does bring pain into our lives, but it's never wasted. He does this in hope, in the hope that we will turn back to him. And so let us follow here the example of those in this passage who, in response to the futilities that they bear, turn back to God by turning to Jesus Christ. Otherwise, we will actually be working a cruelty upon ourselves. We will be wasting the very pain that God intends, us to, intends to use to bring us back to him. God does not waste pain, and neither should we. God is not cruel to us, and so let us not be cruel to ourselves. Which brings us to the second point, death. And I want to focus here specifically on the healings of the young girl and the woman with the chronic bleeding. Because in a special way, these healings focus upon the issue of death. Earlier in the Gospel of Matthew, and in chapter 8, we encountered another set of healings. If you remember, Jesus healed a leper Jesus healed the servant of a centurion and Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law and as we discuss the healing of the leper it addressed old testament issues of uncleanness of ritual impurity and Jesus began this set of healings then by healing the leper by making the unclean clean and we find the same dynamic here the book of leviticus it identifies three main sources of human uncleanness of ritual impurity leprosy, the discharge of bodily fluids and blood, both male and female, in dead bodies. Before, Jesus encountered leprosy. And here he encounters a woman with chronic bleeding and the dead body of a young girl. And so here, now, Jesus has encountered all three main sources of uncleanness, and we have to be careful here because the category of uncleanness in the book of Leviticus, it does not map directly onto the category of sin. It's not a sin to have leprosy. It's not a sin to bleed. It's not sinful to handle dead bodies for the sake of a proper burial. As we mentioned in our earlier sermon, the, the, the seminal work by Leviticus uh, on Leviticus by Jewish scholar Jacob Milgram is very helpful here. Milgram explains that the teaching of Leviticus is a reverence, for life. Milgram understands life itself as an important organizing principle of the law codes of Leviticus. However, Milgram identifies death as the common denominator in the ritual impurities, in the forms of uncleanness that we find in Leviticus. And what all of these conditions symbolize is is death. They represent the loss, the death of the forces of life these symbolize the very futilities that creation has been subjected to. And just like the other set of healings in Matthew 8, this begins with issues of ritual purity and cleanness. And what this means is that these healings ultimately deal with the matter of death itself. Jesus here is fighting against the forces of uncleanness, the forces that symbolize our loss of life, the very forces of death. By making the unclean clean, Jesus introduces, he prefaces, he begins both sets of healings with victory over the harrowing futilities of death that creation is subjected to. This is one reason why the healings of the woman and the young girl, they focus on the matter of touch, of touch, The father of the girl comes to Jesus and he says, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand upon her and she will live. The woman with chronic bleeding, she says to herself, If I only touch, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Touch is the primary means by which uncleanness, by which ritual impurity is passed from one person to another. And here, Jesus will touch and will be touched by persons who are unclean. And so if Jesus were anyone else, the uncleanness would spread to him. Again, uncleanness is not sin, but the very things that represent death in the Levitical system. And so to heal leprosy, to heal chronic bleeding, and most of all to raise the dead is to powerfully communicate that the very forces of death are being overcome creation is being delivered from its bondage and this is because humanity is turning back to god because of these forces of death this father and this woman have turned to christ they are seeking life and this is exactly what jesus gives them he heals this girl he heals this woman and so jesus brings both the symbolic and the actual dead back to life Jesus gives life, Jesus makes clean. But note the way in which the woman comes to Jesus. Again, she says to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. And I believe we best understand this statement again if we look at the Old Testament Levitical background. Why is it that she would only wanna touch Jesus' garment? Well, most likely because she's doing everything that she can to not make Jesus unclean, to not give Jesus ritual impurity. Perhaps she thinks, if I don't touch Jesus himself, if I I can only touch his clothes, then I won't bother the teacher with these pains of death that I carry, because I I wouldn't want him to bear my burden. It's also very possible, as, as New Testament scholar Matthew Thiessen points out, that this woman washed her hands before touching Jesus' clothes. He points out that in Leviticus 15, we find that someone with this woman's condition can keep from spreading uncleanness if they properly wash their hands. And so then this woman comes to Jesus not wanting him to bear her burdens of death. She only wants to touch the fringe of his garment. She comes to Jesus seeking to be As little of a nuisance as little of trouble as possible and before she touches his garment it's very likely that she washes her hands and we have to ask are we like this reaching only for Jesus's fringe do we try to burden Jesus as little as possible as little as we possibly can Are we afraid to come to Jesus in desperation and lay our every burden upon him? Do we look upon Jesus and think he would be reluctant or or he'd be angry to take our suffering upon himself? Or, Or do we wait to wash our hands before we reach out to Jesus? Do we tell ourselves, yes, eventually I'll come to Jesus, but I just need to clean up a little bit first? In what ways do we think Jesus is only someone that we can come to after we've given ourselves a proper cleaning? But take note, Jesus will have none of this. And this brings us to our third and final point, dependence. Look at how Jesus responds to this woman. Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. Jesus is telling us that the young girl who has been brought back to life is not the only daughter in this passage, and her father is not the only father. This woman who has been healed of bleeding, she too is a daughter. And let's reflect on that. Because when we think about a child, when we think about a daughter or a son, we know that they live by way of dependence. Only by the love of caregivers by parents or those who serve as parents to them, can a child be preserved in life? We see this most drastically with with newborns, but this remains the case throughout all of childhood. And this connects directly with the futilities, with the corruptions, with the hardships that we bear in a fallen creation. In these hardships, we realize that we are not independent. That we need the care of others, and most of all, that we need the care of God Himself. In these hardships, we again take that preeminently human posture of radical dependence, of radical receiving. And so these hardships remind us that we are, in a sense, always like children, that we always depend upon the love of another for our livelihood. The philosopher Alistair McIntyre, he ties these threads together in a in a, in a book with the fantastic title, "Dependent Rational Animals," and he's he's talking about humans here. And McIntyre says, "It matters that those who are no longer children recognize in children what they once were; that those who are not yet disabled by age recognize in the old what they are moving toward becoming." and that those who are not ill or injured recognize in the ill and injured what they have often been and will be and always may be. McIntyre tells us that we all operate in these webs of dependence, that we all need the love and the care of others and that there is no indignity in this. Even more, All of us either are or will be in a state of radical dependence. Again, we might be able to ignore death and dying for a while. We might be able to delude ourselves into thinking that we are independent for a while. But eventually, the futilities of life will bring us to our senses. McIntyre connects the radical dependence of childhood with that of aging and illness, all of which... Any of us, if we have a long life, will experience. And Jesus makes the very same connection. He says to this woman who comes to him in the desperate hope of radical dependence, he says, take heart, daughter, for your faith has made you well. The dead girl and the dying woman are both daughters in radical need. They need the radical dependence of physical healing, But they are also in radical need of God. They're in radical need of the life-giving salvation that only their true father, God himself, can bring. They are in radical dependence upon their father in heaven. They, in radical dependence, then come to God. They trust him. They rest in him. They receive his love. In this sense, they are like any child who must depend wholly upon the love and care of their parents. Again, as Jesus tells the woman, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. This is also very much like what Jesus tells the two blind men upon their healing. According to your faith, be it done to you. And so is Jesus telling us that if we just believe strongly enough, then we'll receive any healing that we desire? No, he, he's not. Because faith is Trust. It is trust in some object, in some thing, in someone. If it were the case that any illness, illness could just be healed by, de- by believing hard enough, then our ultimate object of faith would actually be ourselves, our own belief, our own strength. We'd be right back to turning away from God and turning to ourselves. But no. Their faith made them well because of their object of faith. Faith is trust. What we have faith in is our very deepest object of trust. I recently listened to a, an interview with a recent convert to the Christian faith, and he said that, that his life was in such disarray that he felt as if he were drowning, and that all of the advice and other religious options that his friends were directing him to, they were simply ways of teaching him how to swim better. He pointed out that what was different about Christianity was at the core of It was not a command or a technique to swim better, but the offer to let go and be pulled out of the water by someone else, by Jesus Christ. We all have faith. It's just a matter of what we have faith in. If the only way to keep from drowning is to find the right swimming technique, then ultimately your faith is in yourself, even if it's an improved version of yourself. But if your only hope is to give up, and to be rescued from the water by another, then your faith is in that rescuer, that savior. Any young child too young to swim knows this instinctively when they fall into a pool. They don't look down at their own flailing arms and legs, but up to their parents, their only hope against drowning. Their faith rests in their parents, not in themselves. And since their parents can and will save them, They've chosen the right object of faith. They let go and buy this faith through which they give themselves to their parents. They are saved. And the people in this passage have placed their faith in Christ. They are drowning. The futilities of dying and death have made them recognize their radical need, their radical dependence, and so they run to Christ in hope. They have run to God himself. In hope, they have come in radical dependence as precious children of God to God. And this is faith, coming to Christ and resting everything in radical dependence upon him. Faith is the recognition recognition and affirmation of our radical dependence upon Christ. But you might ask, did this faith in Christ, did it really save them? Won't a day come when the woman will turn cold with the bitter frost of death with no blood to bleed? Won't a day come when this little girl will die again? Won't a day come when the lifeless eyes of these men will again go blind? Won't a day come when the frigid lips of this man no longer move with speech? Yes, and the same is true for us. And so, how are these futilities to which creation is subjected, how are they ultimately overcome? This just seems temporary. What hope do these futilities ultimately point us to? Well, Jesus is not only the God who gives life, but Jesus is the human who takes death. He takes the punishment of dying and death that humanity bears because of sin. God as God cannot die. God as God cannot take our illnesses and diseases and futilities. However, God as human can. In Christ, God become human has done just this. The woman with the chronic bleeding did all that she could so as not to burden Christ not to make Christ unclean. She, she washed her hands and touched only her fringe, his fringe, but little did she know that far from taking her mere uncleanness, Christ would take her very death upon himself. The whole reason Christ came to her was to be burdened by and take from her all of these futilities, all of these hardships that she bears. Specifically, Christ did this on the cross because on the cross, Christ took upon himself the burden of death that all of us deserve. While Artemis, the, the Greek god of the hunt, if you remember, she wouldn't even look upon human death. And Jesus Christ, the one true God, has become human. In a sense, he's even given himself to be hunted by humans. And he himself has experienced the death of humans. But Christ did not stay dead. Death could not hold him. On the third day he rose again, but not as the girl was raised in this passage. He rose to never die again. He rose to show that death is conquered. He rose to show that death is now dying and one day death itself will be dead. Christ rose free from all futility and corruption and decay. Christ has risen so that, to recall the words of Paul, creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the glory of the children of God. This is Christ's present, and when we place our radical dependence and trust upon Christ, then this is our future. Christ may heal us miraculously in this life, And let us always pray for this kind of healing. Again, this life is a great, great gift, and to seek healing in this life is to seek a very, very good thing. But if we don't receive this gift, and we ask, Lord, why did you not heal me as you healed this woman, as you healed this girl, as you healed these men, we must hear Christ say, don't you realize that I already have? You may not receive the temporary healing that you seek, one that will still end in death, but do you not know that one day you will be raised never to die again? Because on one day, not long from now, the same words that Christ spoke to this young girl, he will speak to us. Little girl, precious daughter. Little boy, precious son. I say to you, arise. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Let us pray. God, our Father, we thank you for who you are. In hope, we know that you bring all things into our life. You work all that we encounter for our good. And Lord, we pray that all things, both good and both bad, would lead us to Christ Jesus, would, would, would bring us to cling more fully to him, the one who has taken our death and given us life. And we look forward to that one day where we will never taste the bitterness of death again. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.